Today is February the 21st, 2024. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and Big Tech has been collecting and aggregating your personal data. Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? And meanwhile, the National Security Agency, that's the NSA, has been purchasing Americans' internet browsing records from data brokers without first obtaining a search warrant. We have been bringing computer news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for over 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. Our only advocacies are consumerism and, of course, the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is also available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Gen Zers report having fallen for scams more than any other generation. Americans think their older beloved ones are more vulnerable to scammers. But Gen Zers report having fallen for scams more than any other generation, as reported by Citigroup. Citigroup is an American multinational investment bank and financial services corporation headquartered in New York City. Gen Zers report having fallen to financial scams more than any other generation, according to a recent survey by Citi. No one thinks they're going to be scammed. Most Americans overrate their abilities to avoid scams, according to a recent Citi survey. Some 90% of U.S. adults believe they're able to spot financial scams, but more than a quarter, 27%, report have fallen victim. Today's scammers are nimble and aided by sophisticated tools. They often deal in volume, and it only takes one successful attempt to profit. Ultimately, all ages and demographics are at risk. No one is immune. While city survey revealed that three in four Americans are concerned about older loved ones falling victim to a scam, the survey suggests that digitally native generations are at risk too. A third of Gen Z respondents report having been a victim of a financial scam more than any other generation. Whether Gen Zers are more vulnerable to scammers or more aware of the fact that they've been scammed is unclear. What is clear, though, is that fraudsters are getting better at targeting everyone, regardless of their digital fluency. So preparedness is crucial. To achieve a happy, fraud-free new year, remain vigilant. Listen to your instincts and learn to spot red flags. While scammers are constantly updating their tactics, here are some ways they might try to sabotage your financial goals. Claiming to be your bank's fraud department, asking you to move money to keep it safe from fraudsters. Never share your debit PIN. One-time password or login credentials verbally or through an email or text 
even with someone claiming to be from your bank. Importantly, your bank will never ask you to move your money or initiate a transaction to correct a fraudulent one. Pretending to be the delivery company behind your recent purchase and claiming via email or text that they can't deliver your package. They want you to click the link so they can capture the personal and financial information you entered. Or the link could infect your device with harmful malware to steal your information. Remember, don't click any links they send. Instead, verify with the shipment company's website. Taking advantage of your decision to use public Wi-Fi. Using a public network makes you more vulnerable to hackers who can more easily access the personal information you share online. Use a private Wi-Fi network. And protecting yourself from scammers. While scams are rampant, the good news is that everyone can take steps to minimize their risk. First, look to trusted sources to arm yourself with information. When asked about the resources they trust most for scam prevention information, 55% of, of Americans cited their bank among their top three, along with taking advice from friends and family, 44%, and listening to their instincts by drawing on their own past experiences, 41%. There are simple steps you can take to shore up your digital defenses. Enable face or fingerprint logins on your smartphone and banking apps. These can prevent scammers from gaining access should they get a hold of your devices. Create long, unique passwords for each account. Remember, longer is stronger. Spend two minutes each day reviewing your accounts for fraudulent activity. Don't wait for your monthly statement. Enable account alerts and two-factor authentication to a trusted device. Like all things in life, Approaching your incoming communications with a healthy sense of skepticism is a good idea, even though simply asking you to click this link. According to our survey, that's Citibank, almost 4 in 10 Americans that have fallen for a scam did so because they trusted their scammer. Scammer wants you to act without thinking. They're adept at quickly gaining your confidence and impersonating sources you trust such as your bank's fraud department, a financial advisor, or even a member of your own family. Before clicking or sharing, consider who's on the receiving end. Is this really urgent? Does their story have holes? Additionally, you should not respond to communications from unknown sources. If anyone contacts you over text, email, or phone claiming to be from your bank, for example, politely hang up and call the number found on the back of your card or website to verify the interaction. By prioritizing digital safety, learning about scammers' tactics, and taking the time to set up defenses, you may have saved yourself and perhaps your loved ones from losing the money, time, and peace of mind that you deserve. Google saves your conversations with Gemini for years by default. What is Google Gemini? Gemini is Google's latest large language model. It's the system that underpins the types of AI tools you've probably seen and interacted with on the internet. For example, GPT-4 powers ChatGPT plus OpenAI's advanced paid-for chatbot. In Google's case, 
Gemini will be woven into a wide array of tools such as the Bard, Chatbot, Google Search, YouTube, and more. In other words, Gemini isn't a chatbot itself, but the brain that makes it and other tools tick. Google also specified that it has created three variants or sizes of Gemini, Nano, Pro, and Ultra. Nano is now inside the Pixel 8 Pro and destined for other mobile devices, while Gemini Pro has already found its way into Google Bard. Ultra, meanwhile, is designed for highly complex tasks, although it will also come to Bard once Google has completed extensive testing and safeguarding. Don't type anything into Gemini. Google's family of Gen AI apps. That's incriminating. Or that you wouldn't want someone else to see. That's the public service announcements of sorts today from Google, which in a new support document outlines the ways in which it collects data from users of its Gemini chatbot apps for the web, Android, and iOS. Google notes that human annotators routinely read, label, and process conversations with Gemini, albeit conversations disconnected from Google accounts. To improve the service, it's not clear whether these annotators are in-house or outsourced, which might matter when it comes to data security. Google doesn't say. These conversations are retained for up to three years along with related data like the languages and devices the user used and their location. Now Google affords users some control over which Gemini-relevant data is retained and how. Switching off Gemini apps activity in Google's My Activity dashboard, it's enabled by the way by default, prevents future conversations with Gemini from being saved to a Google account for review, meaning the three-year window won't apply. Individual prompts and conversations with Gemini, meanwhile, can be deleted from the Gemini app's activity screen. But Google says that even when Gemini app's activity is off, Gemini conversations will be saved to a Google account for up to 72 hours to maintain the safety and security of Gemini apps and improve Gemini apps. Here's a quote from them. Please don't enter confidential information in your conversations or any data you wouldn't want a review to see or Google to use to improve our products, services, and machine learning technologies. This is from Google. To be fair, Google's Gen AI data collection and retention policies don't differ all that much from those of its rivals. OpenAI, for example, saves all chats with ChatGPT for 30 days regardless of whether ChatGPT's conversation history feature is switched off, excepting in cases where a user's subscribe to an enterprise-level plan with a custom data retention policy. But Google's policy illustrates the challenges inherent in balancing privacy with developing Gen AI models that feed on user data to self-improve. Liberal Gen AI data retention policies have landed vendors in hot water with regulators in the recent past. Last summer, the FTC requested detailed information from OpenAI on how the company vets data used for training its models, including consumer data and how that data is protected when accessed by third parties. Overseas Italy's data privacy regulator, the Italian Data Protection Authority, 
said that OpenAI lacked a legal basis for the mass collection and storage of personal data to train its Gen AI models. As Gen AI models proliferate, organizations are growing increasingly wary of the privacy risk. A recent survey from Cisco found that 63% of companies have established limitations on what data can be entered into Gen AI tools, while 27% have banned Gen AI altogether. The same survey revealed that 45% of employees have entered problematic data into Gen AI tools, including employee information and non-public files about their employer. OpenAI, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and others offer Gen AI products geared towards enterprises that explicitly don't retain data for any length of time, whether for model training or any other purpose. Consumers, though, as is often the case, gets the short end of the sick. Google's huge free AI upgrade for all Android users. The Google versus Apple versus Facebook battle on your smartphone is about to take an exciting new twist if you're an Android user. Google has just revealed a huge AI upgrade that could change the way you use your device. The tech giants behind the most popular smartphone, OS, and app ecosystems have spent years battling for your messaging loyalties, and for good reason. There are no other apps as sticky as WhatsApps or iMessage or Google Messages. They are the center of your social network to which you return through your day every day. Just as Samsung starts floating the idea of a paywall for its own smartphone AI offerings, here comes Google with something more game-changing. How about incorporating BARD directly into its core messaging platform? No new apps to install or complex productivity app extensions to master. This chat GPT-like simplicity pre-installed on every Android smartphone. Google has spent two years pushing its Messages app as the default Android alternative to iMessage. This has included end-to-end encryption and RCS by default and multiple feature releases. Now with that done, here comes an AI upgrade that connects messages users with Google, not just with one another. There are obvious tasks this could simplify. Creating a recipe or drafting a text for your boss are two of the examples are given, but that just scratches the surface of the real opportunity. When ChatGPT was released, Google's rush to release board followed. The question is how will Apple and WhatsApp's respond? Clearly, there are elements of Siri integration into iMessage, albeit that's limited to messaging itself. It's not a direct comparison, but would be easily enough enabled. The issue, of course, is that when your AI chatbot is driven by an advertising giant, you're risking a limited and far from independent experience. A Google search window without the immediate option to scan beyond the advertiser's results. But the alternative is Samsung or ChatGPT like subscription charges for AI features and services. Users will sacrifice a heap of privacy for free. AI in messaging will enable the same business model that's behind search and many other services. Advertisers will pay to reach you. The services will be free. Many users of web search engines complain about the supposedly decreasing quality of search results. 
Evidence for this has always been anecdotal, yet it's not unreasonable to think that popular online marketing strategies such as affiliate incentivize the mass production of such content to maximize clicks. In short, the answer appears to be yes. The AI update coming to Google Messages is part of a trend, of course, and you can expect multiple such AI add-ons to come thick and fast, especially with Google driving much of the momentum. This should be good news for Android users. We have also seen Gmail's own Help Me Write feature adapted to combine AI and voice as spotted. Gmail's Help Me Write and can help you draft emails with ease and definitely can save you some time. Currently, the functionality is available on both web and apps, but you have to write the email prompt yourself using the keyboard. On the Gmail app for Android, Google is working on a feature which will let you draft emails without voice. And there was the earlier news that Android Auto will use AI to intelligently filter information in and out of the system while you keep your hands on the steering wheel and your eyes on the road. Many positives, clearly, but that core risk is narrowing search results isn't the only word of warning here. Google Messages chats with BARD and not secured by end-to-end encryption, and Google being Google, as you know, will store your data and use it to improve its algorithms, just as with other such models. Be careful what you ask. The European Union to slap Apple with $530 million fine in culmination of antitrust probe after Spotify's complaint. Apple CEO Tom Cook faces antitrust pressures in the European Union. The European Union is close to hitting Apple with its first ever antitrust fine as well as a ban on the App Store rules that the bloc believes thwart competition, according to the Financial Times. The fine of around $530 million is expected to be announced next month. The Financial Times said, citing five sources it did not name, Apple could have been fined as much as 10% of its annual global sales. The probe was sparked by a complaint in 2019 from Sweden's Spotify technology, which claimed it was forced to ramp up its monthly subscription price to cover costs associated with Apple's alleged stranglehold on how the App Store operates. The European Commission homed in on Apple's so-called anti-steering rules in a formal charge sheet in February of 2023, saying the conditions were unnecessary and meant customers face higher prices. In early 2022, Apple began allowing Spotify and other music services to direct app users to the web to sign up for subscriptions. This bypasses Apple's revenue cut of as much as 30% and give consumers more pricing and subscription options. But Spotify hit back at Apple's efforts, saying in June that the restrictions still existed and the changes were just for show. Aside from attacking firms for their past abuses, the Commission, the European Union's antitrust arm, has also pushed through sweeping new rules to head off competition violations by tech firms before they take root. The Digital Markets Act enters into full force in March of 2024 and laid out a series of do's and don'ts. Under the DMA, it will be illegal for the most powerful firms to favor their own services over those of rivals. 
Older workers are finding a less tolerant workplace now. Why many say age discrimination abounds. Older workers are everywhere these days, and so, it seems, is age discrimination. Roughly two-thirds of adults over 50 believe older workers face discrimination in the workplace, according to a new AARP report. Of that group, 90% believe ageism is commonplace. The finding, based on a series of surveys in 2022 and 2023, comes at a time when America's labor pool is conspicuously aging. The 65 and up workforce has quadrupled in size since the mid-1980s. Nearly one quarter of the workforce is 55 or older. We're generally speaking of a society that really values youth, not only physically, but in these beliefs that everything good is young. Potential victims of ageism can be tricky to identify, let alone defend. Age discrimination might strike a ball player at age 30, an actor at 40, a news anchor at 50, a law partner at 60. Federal protections kick in at 40. For the aging worker, a reversal of fortune can be swift and devastating. Negative evaluations, layoff threats, buyout offers, demotions, and pay cuts. And all of this comes on the heels of peak earning years in workers' 40s and early 50s. The landscape of the labor market has changed drastically, but our attitudes have not caught up. Episodes of ageism can be subtle. In hiring, it might surface in a job ad that seeks digital natives or in an application that asks for graduation year. In the office, ageism can be an organizational push to promote the next generation or a gradual reduction of an older worker's duties. You might suddenly start to get carefully sidelined and not ask to participate in more innovative projects. You might find yourself getting subtly cut out of those meetings. An employee who's had a stellar record starts to get mediocre performance reviews when nothing has changed. Half of older job seekers had to provide a birth date on an application. The new AARP report draws on a series of surveys of over the age 50 Americans in 2022 and 2023 by AARP. Among the findings, one in five older adults said they had personally experienced age discrimination since turning 40. Roughly, one quarter said they had heard negative comments about an older co-worker's age. Half of older job seekers said they had been asked to provide a birth date on an application. Many older Americans left the workforce at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, some driven out by layoffs, other opting out over health concerns. Employment dipped by 15% or nearly 6 million workers for people 55 and over in the early months of 2020, according to an analysis by the Economic Policy Institute. Many have since returned to the workforce but not without considerable effort. Older workers tend to stay unemployed longer than younger workers. AARP research has found. Virtual work, which exploded during the pandemic, proved a blessing and a curse for older workers, experts say. Working from home has been a boom for older Americans who find themselves liberated from arduous commutes and awkward water cooler exchanges with younger colleagues. Yet in virtual work, 
there's more technology involved, and for some older workers, that alone makes them a little more uncomfortable. For older job applicants, ageism can lie a Zoom call away. The rise in remote interviewing has harmed older candidates. Here are some tips from AARP and others for older workers to minimize potential ageism in a job application. With your resume, say the past 10 to 15 years, and while you need include your credentials, you don't have to include dates in the distant past. AARP encourage older workers to really focus their resume on the last 10 years of experience because that's really the most relevant experience they're bringing to the table. And don't put your street address at the top. That convention is becoming archaic, AARP says, and it exposes you to potential fraud. Ditch that AOL address. Clinging to an account on an old-school email service, no offense, but AOL and Hotmail can tag you as an old person. Get a new one on a comparatively modern service such as Gmail and pick a professional-sounding handle that incorporates your name. Bot-proof your resume. Employers use bots to scan resumes and eliminate as many as possible before they reach human hands. To get past the robo-gatekeeper, make sure your resume includes keywords specific to your industry. If certain terms pop up again and again in the job listing, put them in your resume. Meta plans to build artificial general intelligence, software that can reason like humans do. CEO Mark Zuckerberg said in an interview, to do so, the company is stockpiling GPUs. By the end of this year, Meta will own nearly 600,000 GPUs with more than half of those NVIDIA's H100 chips. Zuckerberg stated, we've come to this view that in order to build the products that we want to build, we need to build for general intelligence. We have built up the capacity to do this at a scale that may be larger than any other individual company. Meta is currently training Llama 3, which will have code-generating capabilities and focus on more advanced reasoning and planning abilities. The company released Code Llama, a large language model for coding built on top of Llama 2 in August. Code Llama was built primarily by researchers at Fundamental AI Research, the company's AI research lab. Fear, which is the company's name, will be moved alongside the Generative AI Group, which works on generative AI products for Meta's apps. President Joe Biden's plan to use emergency powers to push technology companies into providing information on their artificial intelligence programs has come under fire by those who consider it an overreach. According to the Biden administration, AI projects pose a significant national security threat that warrants the use of the Defense Production Act, a law from 1950 that grants the government emergency powers to control domestic industries. Past presidents delegated these powers to various government branches. Members of the tech industry hit out at Biden's plan to use the powers as a check on artificial intelligence. Senator Mike Rounds stated that there is not a national emergency on artificial intelligence and said that regulating AI is not necessarily what the Defense Production Act was made for in the first place. 
Kazabo, the vice president and general counsel for NetChoice, a tech industry trade association, added that this is a clear violation of executive authority. I expect a swift rebuke from the courts once this gets challenged. Some did defend President Biden's decisions, such as the Brookings Institution visiting fellow Tom Wheeler, who stated that the president found a way to act on an issue that Congress has neglected. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. It's time to talk about computers, the workplace, and in this case, something that we've been enabled to do for quite a while, and that is remote work. And a lot of companies have gone through different approaches to bringing some people, many people, back into the office. And I, you know, there are good ways to do it and there are bad ways to do it. And earlier this year, WebMD's CEO sent out a video. And this video went in a number of different directions. It uh, it said basically, hey, it's time to return to the office. And it started off with people in the office and they were having a wonderful time being productive. And then it goes, you know, not enough people have really come back to the office. And then it showed a remote worker who was, I'll just say they were in their pajamas. We'll put it like that. And in the, the CEO said, many of you haven't come back. Many of you have come back to the office, and we've noticed it's made a big difference. Unfortunately, too big of a group has not returned. We're getting more serious about getting everybody back into the office for the simple reason that we're better when we're together. The problem here is that it was mocking those people who had not gone to the office, who had not returned. And I'll tell you that a lot of people took notice of this. You know, it's it's one thing to to approach a topic with humor. It is another thing when you take things to a new level. When you start approaching and attacking people through whatever means you have. I will tell you that in my past, I worked for a company where the CEO was a little bit more acerbic than this, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more insulting, and it made for a very uncomfortable workplace. Fortunately for many people, it was something localized. It was a small company. It was nothing to really, you know, thrill the internet with. But when you're the is CEO of a major website, we, WebMD. We're talking not not a small company. We're talking a lot of employees, and it wasn't even a matter of the, the CEO just of WebMD. They've got something called Internet Brands. They do a number of other things, and I will tell you, if you are in one of those experiences where they're uh, where they're insulting you, that's not good. Nobody wants to be insulted. Nobody wants to go through these experiences. I'm not sure what the long-term prospect is for a company like that that fails to respect the workers, especially by sending out things like this. 
Now, okay, it's I, I'm going to separate this out because there are a lot of companies that are telling people, you know what, it's time to come back into the office. There are companies out there that are, that are actually luring people in. Yes, there is. There's if for if for everyone that's going, hey, come back into the office, or you're canned. Yeah, which is which is also kind of rough and kind of abusive, especially when they uh, many companies have said, you know, we've we've embraced the long term aspect of we're all going to work from uh, via remote. That's fine. The best approach that I've seen is enticing people back into the office, encouraging them and saying, yes, we are adding in new reasons for you to be in place at your desk versus at home. We understand that that, that approach of we know that is very very exciting and for some people you know what your parents and you're going to want to spend more time at home rather than on the road and we we get that we're 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 trying to balance this out we're trying to bring good work life balance that's a, that's a wonderful approach unfortunately there are far too few companies that are really doing that to the greatest extent that they should I'm just one person here on the radio just saying this is a great way to go. There are people who are in new situations that, you know, uh, personally, my day job is somewhere around 900 miles away from home. I'm not going to be going into the office, but my boss knows that. And they've made very nice accommodations for me. And uh, and we've got a number of people on my team that have similar situations. But if I were to see a video that was mocking the whole idea of everybody who works from home saying that, oh, you guys are all just a bunch of lazy people just sitting around in your pajamas and you're just, uh, you know, you're, you're just making money here off of us. I, I, I would... I would feel like I would want to move on. Let's note, I don't work for WebMD. I don't work for internet brands. But when I heard about this, when I saw what was going on here, I I said, this is not the way. We've gone through a lot over the course of the last four years. We've gone through so many different changes in how we interpret the world around us. And yes, well, many companies are pulling the idea of remote work off of the table. They're saying we want more people in the office. We want more people hybrid. We want, you know, less fully 100% remote. There's still plenty of positions out there. There's still plenty of people who are definitely willing to be flexible. I don't know how this is going to impact WebMD or internet brands, but it can't be good over the long haul. Just my opinion. Just my approach to it. But there you go. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. The different types of artificial intelligence. Early iterations of the AI applications we interact with Most today were built on traditional machine learning models. These models rely on learning algorithms that are developed and maintained by data scientists. In other words, traditional machine learning models need human intervention 
to process new information and perform any new task that falls outside their initial training. AI capabilities have been evolving steadily since the breakthrough development of artificial neural networks in 2012, which allow machines to engage in reinforcement learning and simulate how the human brain processes information. Unlike basic machine learning models, deep learning models allow AI applications to learn how to perform new tasks that need human intelligence, engage in new behaviors, and make decisions without human intervention. As a result, deep learning has enabled task automation, content generation, predictive maintenance, and other capabilities across industries. Due to deep learning and other advancements, the field of AI remains in a constant and fast-paced state of flux. Our collective understanding of realized AI and theoretical AI continues to shift, meaning AI categories and AI terminology may differ and overlap from one source to the next. However, the types of AI can be largely understood by examining two encompassing categories, AI capabilities and AI functionalities. The three kinds of AI based on capabilities are, first, artificial narrow AI. Artificial narrow intelligence, also known as weak AI, what we refer to as narrow AI, is the only type of AI that exists today. Any other form of AI is theoretical. It can be trained to perform a single or narrow task, often far faster and better than the human mind can. However, it can't perform outside of its defined task. Instead, it targets a single subset of cognitive abilities and advances in that spectrum. OpenAI's ChatGPT is considered a form of narrow AI because it's limited to the single task of text-based chat. The next is general AI. Artificial general intelligence, or otherwise known as AGI, and also known as strong AI, is today nothing more than a theoretical concept. AGI can use previous learning and skills to accomplish new tasks in a different context without the need for human beings to train the underlying models. This ability allows AGI to learn and perform any intellectual task that a human being can. And then next is super AI. Super AI is commonly referred to as artificial super intelligence is strictly theoretical. If ever realized, super AI would think, reason, learn, make judgments, and possess cognitive abilities that surpass those of human beings. The applications possessing super AI capabilities will have evolved beyond the point of understanding human sentiments and experiences to feel emotions, have needs, and possess beliefs and desires of their own. The four types of AI based on functionalities are underneath narrow AI, one of the three types based on capabilities, there are two functional AI categories. The first is reactive machine AI. Reactive machines are AI systems with no memory and are designed to perform a very specific task. Since they can't recollect previous outcomes or decisions, they only work with presently available data. Reactive AI stems from statistical math and can analyze vast amounts of data to produce a seemingly intelligence output.
The second is limited memory AI. Unlike reactive machine AI, this form of AI can recall past events and outcomes and monitor specific objects or situations over time. Limited AI can use past and present moment data to decide on a course of action most likely to help achieve a desired outcome. However, while limited memory AI can use past data for a specific amount of time, it can't retain that data in a library of past experiences to use over a long-term period. As it's trained on more data over time, limited memory AI can improve in performance. Then there is the third, the theory of mind AI. Theory of mind AI is a functional class of AI that falls underneath the general AI, though an unrealized form of AI today. AI with theory of mind functionality would understand the thoughts and emotions of other entities. This understanding can affect how the AI interacts with those around them. In theory, this would allow the AI to simulate human-like relationships. Because theory of mind AI could infer human motives and reasoning, it would personalize its interactions with individuals based on their unique emotional needs and intentions. Theory of mind AI would also be able to understand and contextualize artwork and essays, which today's generative AI tools are unable to do. Emotion AI is a theory of mind AI currently in development. AI researchers hope it will have the ability to analyze voices, images, and other kinds of data to recognize, simulate, monitor, and respond appropriately to humans on an emotional level. To date, emotion AI is unable to understand and respond to human feelings. And last, the self-aware AI. Self-aware AI is a kind of a functional AI class for applications that would possess super AI capabilities. Like theory of mind AI, self-aware AI is strictly theoretical. If ever achieved, it would have the ability to understand its own internal conditions and traits along with human emotions and thoughts. It would also have its own set of emotions, needs, and beliefs. Emotion AI is a theory of mind AI currently in development. Researchers hope it will have the ability to analyze voices, images, and other kinds of data to recognize, simulate, monitor, and respond appropriately to humans on an emotional level. To date, Emotion AI is unable to understand and respond to human feelings. Additional capabilities and practical applications of AI technologies. Computer vision, which is narrow AI applications, with computer vision can be trained to interpret and analyze the visual world. This allows the intelligent machines to identify and classify objects within images and video footage. Applications of computer vision include image recognition and classification, object detection, object tracking, facial recognition, content-based image retrieval. Computer vision is critical for use cases that involve AI machines interacting and traversing the physical world around them. Examples include self-driving cars and machines navigating warehouses and other environments. And then there is something that we're all familiar with, Robotics. 
Robotics in industrial settings can use narrow AI to perform routine, repetitive tasks that involve materials handling, assembly and quality inspections in healthcare. Robots equipped with narrow AI can assist surgeons in monitoring vitals and detecting potential issues during procedures. Agricultural machines can engage in autonomous pruning, moving, thinning, seeding, and spraying. And smart home devices, such as the iRobot Roomba, can navigate a home's interior using computer vision and use data stored in memory to understand its progress. Then there's expert systems. Expert systems equipped with narrow AI capabilities can be trained on a corpus to emulate the human decision-making process and apply expertise to solve complex problems. These systems can evaluate vast amounts of data to uncover trends and patterns to make decisions. They can also help businesses predict future events and understand why past events occur. As noted, AI has many variations, and as we progress, there'll probably be many more. But when people are talking about AI, AI contains a wide area of many different fields. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. How, how, how do they know that we're really us? I, well, because... We could, we could be deep fakes. I, I don't think we are. Well, I hope we aren't. That's the voice of Marty Winston, who is distinctly real. And uh, this is Benjamin Rockwell. I'm distinctly real. Trust us. Trust <laughs> us. Just like the AI... Just like you know, this is a. I, I, you've told me what this top, what this this product is, but I want to talk about this for just a moment because this is I, a I, timely issue. Are things we, real or are they fake? It comes down we, to that. Is the content written by a human? Is the content written by an idiot or by a robot or by AI? But it's 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 moving beyond that. I'm seeing news organizations. Mm-hmm. That are putting up, they're going on out to one of these image generation units. Rather than sending a photographer out to get a really good picture, they're using these image generators to develop something that's not quite real. And you can tell what I mean. For me, one of the things, the colors are just too fantastical. The the imagery is too fantastical. And oh yes. The fingers. It's about as close to real life as a Norman Rockwell painting. Uh, no, I, I would, I would defend Norman on that one. Norman was so much better. Well, he was. was it, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the but, AI but again, stuff. He's, yeah. used, he's Norm- using color demarcations in the ways the the ways sure. that happened for the AI. Yes, but Norman Rockwell actually knew how to draw fingers, which the AI doesn't. Well, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. So, By the so, way, Norman Rockwell is no relation of yours, is he? Actually, is yes. He is. Yes. Oh, no yeah. wonder you're defending him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what's that uh, calendar on your wall? No, it's not. <laughs> uh, no, it, it, there is one around here. I think it's um, where is? It? I think it's in the kitchen. Well, they, <laughs> they, they're not tuning in to hear about calendars. <laughs> no, no, they want to hear about technology, and of course, this, all of this AI generated. It just, I, I look at it, and I think it's garbage. But you know, I. Uh, uh, well, imagine. On. Yeah. Imagine you're in a professional role where you're getting documents. They may be resumes. They may be applications. They may be 
requests for proposals. They may be anything else. Yeah. How do you know they're legitimate? How do you know the person wrote them? Couldn't you spam every bank or every charity in the world asking for a donation using AI to send the letters out and wonder what kind of checks you're going to get? I mean, I've been really? found out. You, you already know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, yes. I mean, we, we, we're already seeing like the scammers, the bad guys using AI. Yeah. But uh, but you're right. It, it is a problem where we've got to figure this out. And I, I, I'm yes. Continue. Well, sometimes security comes down to recognizing the source. You know, mm-hmm. uh, whether the content holds valid information or it's junk, whether it was authored by real human intelligence or manufactured by something artificial. Now, I'm not talking about uh, deepfake photos or videos, at least not yet, but about the ability to tell whether. The system that authored any specific example of written textual prose was a binary entity with hardware or a biped entity with wetware. (laughs) Now, I'll admit, I was attracted when I saw the company name is Winston.ai. No relation. So not like not like Norman Rockwell and myself. No, I, it's, yeah, yeah, I, I, I got it. Okay. We got Rockwell and Winston in a segment twice. What are we going to do? So I created a free but limited login. Now, I got excited when one of the first things I saw was the just added option of installing this as a Chrome extension. Mm-hmm, yeah. Boy, does that get easy. Where is there more artificial intelligence than online, right? So my first test, I asked the Bing enhanced AI to answer the following question. Mm -hmm. In what way are large language models flawed? Mm -hmm. Bing gave me an answer, which I highlighted right in the browser, right-clicked, chose the scan for AI content choice. Mm -hmm. And within a few seconds, a pop-up on the bottom right of the screen told me there was only a 2% chance that a human authored that piece of text. Okay. That's really cool. So I went to the Cleveland Plain Dealer online, mm-hmm. our local newspaper. I did the same with the lead front page article, and the Winston AI detected the text as 100% likely to be human. Okay. Nice. I also took something I wrote for somebody else, and it said there was a 22% chance that it was not human. <laughs> that's because you've been doing this so long it's it's gotten kind of kind of robotic well, it's and, also uh, because i was using collegiate level vocabulary and yeah, slap sure. me. <laughs> now, i i can see this kind of facility getting used by hr departments on resumes credentials by journalists or politicians yeah, yeah, when looking yeah. for fake news many others a brief trial is free beyond that there are monthly or annual subscription plans but no cost to just sign up at Go Winston.ai. I'm really liking that. And this is something that we all need to be wary of. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, and aware of. We need to have more tools like this to spot. Yeah. Well, I'm also thinking about the extent to which foreign cyber operations are oh, yeah. populating social yeah. media with uh, what in another area we might have referred to as. Uh, a male bovine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot out there, and it's yeah, it, we're we're going to have a very interesting struggle ahead of us. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. And that's Marty Winston. Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty.
Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and the Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, February the 22nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting, and their website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, March the 1st. Meeting time is 8 p.m., online virtual meeting via Jitsi. The website is acgnj.org. The Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, March the 7th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, March the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, March the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. The phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, March the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and the website is nyacc.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN, live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to Hank at PCRadioShow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.